0: By your spirit, we would be quickened in our hearts this morning as we hear your word and reflect on the truths of your church confessed in the Nicene Creed. We pray that you draw us closer to you. We pray that you would bring to, to mind things that we need to know as we seek to live in your spirit and walk in your ways. In Jesus' name, amen. For those of you who have missed parts of these last few Sundays, this is the fourth and final uh, focus on the Nicene Creed that we've been looking at. Since we say it every Sunday, we wanna know why we're saying it and what we're saying. And that's been the major purpose of it. But it's been an absolute delight for me to study this and prepare for this and learn some things new. And I hope I can share some of that with you as well as we go through this. The Nicene Creed uh, is uh, one of the things that Anglican churches uh, confess as a, an instrument of orthodoxy, I would call it, to keep us focused on what we really do believe. It's not just a confession of faith. In fact, it's not fully a confession of faith, but it reminds us of what we believe, but it also draws our attention to the, to the issue of in whom do we believe? And it's a Trinitarian statement that we believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And each of these three uh, are elaborated on. Today, then, we come to the final part where we're going to focus on that part that begins, we believe in the Holy Spirit. And uh, also alongside of that, we've been um, delving into the fourth century when the Nicene Creed was written and other uh, councils were held by the church to sort out the church's doctrine of the Trinity. We believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the first four ecumenical councils, which we also affirm as uh, authoritative guidance for the Church, uh, are uh, in focus as well we've We've focused on uh, how the Church confessed that Jesus is indeed fully God, not partially God, not created by the God the Father, but equally and eternally. Um, part of a divine trinity what we come to in the last part of our study is uh, the focus on the spirit because the church also had to come to say and the spirit is not just a force as the Unitarians would believe today the spirit is not just some created being subsequent to the father and the son but equally and eternally part of the uh, triune God so this is what we're looking at today let's move on uh, Daniel. The Nicene Creed then has these three parts, the Father, Son, and Spirit. And uh, this is my translation, just to bring out some points of the Nicene Creed, a little bit different from exactly the way you might say it, or we might say it in a, in a bit in the service. But the part in white there is what the Nice, the Council of Nicaea actually said. And then between 325 and 381, when the second ecumenical council was held, there was this um, controversy in the church about the Holy Spirit. The Nicene council elaborated the red part there to get right our doctrine of Jesus Christ. But then in the debates about who the spirit was, the council of Constantinople expanded what is said in in the purple part here, Uh, and the Holy Spirit, and then it goes on, and everything else there that's not in white in that section was added by the Council of Constantinople. Let me just read that. Uh, We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and life-giver who comes from the Father, who with the Father and the Son is together worshipped and glorified, who spoke through the prophets in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, we confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We wait for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the coming age. Amen. That is, um, that is what we, we now say, the, the creed we call the Nicene Creed is the creed of Nicaea and Constantinople from the fourth century. Let's move on. Uh, <clears throat> we're going to look at this in three parts today. Uh, We're going to focus on what were these issues about the Holy Spirit in the church in the fourth century to understand why we say what we say even today uh, along these lines. Then we're going to focus on how this really is an expansion of uh, the vows of our baptism. Um, And then we're going to conclude with uh, a look at Ephesians and how this uh, brings out some very important points for what I would call is life in the spirit for those of us who are believers. So that's th- right here then we see some of the heretical views that were being thrown around by unorthodox priests and bishops in the 4th century that had to get sorted out by the church and, and the creed is what comes uh, to do that. Uh, for example, the spirit was a force, not personal Again, as, as the Unitarians today would say. Uh, the Spirit is a creature created by God. Uh, more than human, more than other creatures, but not equally God. Or the Scripture is just vague on the issue of the Spirit's divinity and person. Let's not make this an issue. It always comes up, doesn't it, in doctrinal debates. And then the Spirit is not fully divine. The three persons of God possessed deity in different degrees. Now, these views are answered in our creed when we confess it. Let's move on. Uh, now, the church, to answer these uh, heretical views, focused on the word proceed. Uh, the Spirit proceeds, we say in the creed t- today, from the Father and the Son. Now, you'll notice what we just had up there was the, the creed just saying we proceed from the Father. It was in the subsequent centuries that we added and the sun, proceeds from the sun, at least in the Western church. But the language of proceed is not at all technical. It's biblical. It comes from John 15, verse 26, which we'll have up on the screen shortly. And uh, this idea of proceeding simply means come from. And so it's Johannine language. John uses it. Um, And in fact, Jesus says that he comes from. It's the same word some translations might say proceeds from, but Jesus comes from the Father, John 8, 42. And then, oh, here we do have the verse, 15:26. So but when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds, or comes from, as the NRSV says, uh, from the Father, who comes from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Now that is the same word used in the Nicene Creed, proceeds from. Let's just move on, and we'll see that this language of proceeds from was latched onto in a more technical sense than John meant it in order to counter these heresies in the 4th century. Uh, A way of saying, uh, let's use this language of proceeds from to declare that the Spirit is equally divine with Father and Son. Uh, He doesn't just come from, in a, a simple sense, but actually comes from the being of God and therefore is equally God, of one substance with the Father and the Son. So for example, Gregory of Nyssa in the fourth century said the Spirit is out of God and is of Christ. The Spirit is out of the Father and receives from the Son. They were trying with whatever language they spoke and in whichever way they could to uh, affirm the deity of the Holy Spirit. the Anglican Church of North America comes to the same kinds of affirmations about the deity of the Father at, in the recent catechism that has been produced. It says of the Spirit that the Holy Spirit eternally proceeds. In other words, he's not created later, or he's not, not some different substance or something, but eternally proceeds from, the, the, uh, from God, the Father. And then later on it says, God the Holy Spirit is the third person in the one being of the Holy Trinity, co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father and God the Son, and equally worthy of our honor and worship. Here are reflections of the Nicene Creed in that statement as well. Um, Now the issues, uh, just to lay them out, were, in the fourth century, uh, whether the Spirit is divine, as I've said, Secondly, what is the relationship of the Trinity? We say that there is one God who begets the Son in the earlier part of the Creed and from whom the Spirit proceeds. Both of these are trying to affirm the deity of Christ and the deity of the Holy Spirit with the language of begetting and proceeding. The persons of the Trinity, there are three persons. One God in three persons is the way we say that. Uh, The eternity of the Trinity, from all time and outside of time, uh, we have Father, Son, and Spirit. And then the unity of the Trinity, one God, not three gods, acting together. Again, John 15, 26 was crucial for the Church to reflect on these things. Uh, Another uh, Orthodox uh, person from the 4th century, Gregory of Nyssa, tried to explain it this way, and I've tried to throw up a little picture of that as well. Um, He said, every operation which extends from God to creation, so the work of God, uh, and is named according to our variable conceptions of it, and then here's the crucial part, has its origin from the Father and proceeds through the Son and is perfected in the Holy Spirit. And that, that language of uniting Father, Son, and Spirit became crucial. Uh, this is just before the Council of Constantinople that he's writing this. Now, the main thing that Gregory was doing was he was saying, you can't separate out and say, well, look, this is work of God the Father, and this is work of God the Son, and this is work of God the Holy Spirit, and, and then also create division within the triune God. But he said every work involves Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Every work. And you'll notice in the New Testament that when uh, the Father is spoken of, he's spoken of as creator, but also the Son is involved in creation, and also the Holy Spirit is involved in creation as an example. We can't separate out the work of Christ. Sometimes you will hear people say, we should only pray to God the Father, and maybe through the Son to the Father. But, but that's making the error that is being corrected here in the fourth century, that they are equally God, equally to be glorified, equally to be worshiped, and we pray to Father, Son, and Spirit. We can't separate that out as the church. Okay, moving on, Daniel. So the Spirit's identity is affirmed in what we say in the creed. And we get to that with understanding that the Spirit has divine character. As uh, Basil the Great said in the fourth century, uh, the spirit is intrinsically holy. He doesn't derive his holiness from the Father, for example. He's intrinsically holy. Um, His greatness and dignity are in himself and not derivative, but participates in the divine identity that is great, divine, and holy. The divine activity of creation, power, sanctification, and as we say in the creed, uh, the inspiration of the prophets is through the, through the Spirit. So this is also divine work of the Spirit. The Spirit is regularly associated with Father and Son, and we've seen that already in our series as we've looked at how Ephesians uh, has a number of passages that together mention Father, Son, and Spirit in their uh, association. And then also the Creed importantly says um, honored and glorified. We, the, what is only due to God is uh, something that we say of the Spirit as well. The Spirit is accorded the same glory, honor, and worship as the Father and the Son. We call Him Lord and Life-Giver. Okay. Now mo- moving to the next part, of what I wanted to share with you uh, is a look at the creed from a baptismal lens. And I've had this up before, or at least part of this slide up before, where I put up the early third century um, baptismal service. What was said when someone came to Christ and was baptized in the Father, Son, and Spirit? And uh, in the third section of this, the question is asked of the person being baptized, do you believe in the Holy Ghost and the Holy Church and the resurrection of the flesh? And by the affirmation of this faith, then they are baptized. And and believers are baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, Um, not only the name of the Son. Now, regarding this, I think it's interesting that when we see a similar creedal kind of statement all the way back in the first century, all the way back in the very early years of the church, we find some similarity. Uh, When we look at Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, which is a Trinitarian confession, uh, as we've seen in the first uh, talk I gave on the creed, uh, we 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 see that the, the affirmation is in the Spirit, the Son, and the Father, and just looking at this um, four four through six, we can see some points that carry over to what is said in the Creed. So, for example, we say there is one body. Well, that's an affirmation of belief in the Church, the community, the people of God, and so therefore in. in in the baptismal statement and in the creed, the Nicene Creed, we we say we affirm belief in the Holy Church, one holy Catholic and apostolic church, as we say. And then secondly, uh, firstly, we we believe in one spirit, then one church, and then secondly, uh, thirdly, we we, uh, don't have in the baptismal statement a belief in baptism. Isn't that obvious? (laughs) You're being baptized. So that's missing. But in the creed, in the Nicene Creed, we add that because we're reaffirming our baptismal confession. So we do believe in one baptism. And then fourthly, uh, we believe in, do you believe in the resurrection of the flesh, says says this, or a resurrection of the body um, and the life to come is the way the creed puts it. Well, there there you have the idea of hope. And we believe, uh, you were called to the one hope, we see in chapter 4. So what I'm suggesting to you is that this isn't something that develops later, but this is something already present in Paul's writing and and something that is uh, actively in the minds of the Christian congregations already. The phrasing might change over the years, but the points are there as well. Therefore, when we come to this third section... We're not simply saying, and we believe in the Holy Spirit. Oh, and by the way, let's add a few other things that we believe in as well. But rather, these four things belong together in a baptismal uh, reflection. Our baptismal reflection is this, and we're going to see this in the next few slides as well. It is the Holy Spirit that baptizes us into the church. And it is, he baptizes us into the church, so we believe in one church. And, and the baptism is there as well, and it is the Spirit then who gives us a guarantee of the things to come, and therefore we also confess belief in the resurrection and the life to come. Those things belong together, and we might, call, might we might say talk about those things with this language. This is life in the Trinity. Uh, sorry, this is life in the Spirit. This is life in the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who brings us into the church. The Spirit is the one who's present at our baptism. The Spirit is the one who guarantees us this hope of the Christian life. The Spirit is also, as we'll shortly see, is the Spirit who gives us the life in Him, here and now, in a way that is life-transforming and life-giving. Okay, let's move on then. Um, Another passage in Ephesians is worth bringing up as well. This is what we have been reading Uh, from chapter 1, these last three Sundays, and these are the last two verses of the passage we've read uh, for three Sundays in a row. This is where we see the Trinitarian statement in Ephesians 1, 3 through uh, 14, coming to focus on the Spirit. Each section references Jesus and his work there, but now we're introduced to the Spirit in verse uh, 13. So in him, in Jesus Christ, you also, when you had heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and had believed in him. Notice all of that's regarding starting your life in Christ, right? When you've heard, when you've believed. And then it says, we're marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. I'm going to suggest to you that that's referring to baptism. Marked with the seal by the Holy Spirit. And then, this is the pledge of our inheritance toward redemption as God's own people to the praise of his glory. And there we have a look to the life to come. Uh, That is in the baptismal and the Nicene Creed. Uh, The inheritance, uh, everything that God gives us, including the resurrection from the dead and the life to come, that's that's in view here as well. So I think that this is essential, essential, biblical Christian faith that we're affirming in this section of the Nicene Creed as well. Now, just real quickly, uh, I want to focus on two words that appear in that Ephesians 1.13-14 passage, the word seal and the word guarantee. Seal, a seal is something that you can see. It's sealed. It's got the... uh, stamp on it. it uh, the, the circumcision was a seal. It was a visible seal. Um, Paul says that the churches that he has uh, managed to start are the seal of his apostleship. See, you can see it. It's, it, it's, it shows you, and therefore also th- our baptism is an outward expression of an inward grace that is God's seal upon us we are now uh, we now have the seal of the Holy Spirit upon us so we find that kind of language of seal there but we also find the language of guarantee so what is sealed is also a guarantee of what God promises to us and uh, that language is used by Paul in several passages here let me focus on a different passage, though, to make the point. From Matthew, remember when Jesus is baptized by John at the River Jordan. We have water and baptism present. We have the Spirit come down. We have the guarantee that is given when God's voice speaks and says, this is my Son. See, that's, that's a guarantee. That's a sealing and a guaranteeing. And that's present at Jesus' baptism. And so similarly, we need to understand our baptism in this way. A couple passages to think about in this regard uh, that bring out some of these points. In Galatians 3, 27 through 28, Paul says, For as many of you as were baptized, there's the language of baptism, into Christ, have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Notice the unity that is in that I- idea. We believe in one holy, Catholic, apostolic church. There's, there's a unity that we participate in through our baptism. And when we repeat the Nicene Creed every Sunday, we are expressing our unity in the Spirit and in Christ. Uh, that is part, part of uh, what this is all about. Um, we are expressing that we have together been sealed as the church through baptism. We, In other words, uh, that's our entry point into the church, the people of God, um, our baptism. And then 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for in one spirit, the Galatians passage didn't have the spirit language, but here now we have the spirit active here. For for in one spirit we were all baptized, there's baptism, in one body, there's the church, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Very similar language overlapping and emphasizing the point um, about this last part of the creed uh, in terms of how the spirit, the church, the baptism and the hope that we have are related uh, together. Okay, let's move on. <clears throat> now, I want to uh, move to the third part of what I had to share here. Uh, and and the, here we move not just from we're not, us We're not just focusing here on a statement of belief in the Spirit or a belief that the Spirit is equal, equally divine with Father and Son. Here I want to get a little bit more existential and spiritual with you. We ought to do that, shouldn't we? Um, it's not just an academic exercise, but it's a reflection on what does this really mean for us. And regularly in Scripture, we find uh, several images that uh, are are related, and uh, one of those is a relationship between Israel as a people of God and the land. There's quite a parallel in imagery and and even uh, actual historical relationship between the people and the land, Israel and the land. And so sometimes when God wants to describe the spiritual condition of his people, Israel, he'll he'll describe that spiritual condition in, in terms of a land. And their sinfulness is like this. It is a barren wilderness instead of a, uh, a lush environment where fruit can be born. And so that is one picture I want you to have in your mind. Do you know where this is? This is just east of Jerusalem. If you, if you fly, fly, pretend you're a bird, fly from Jerusalem for about 20 miles to the Dead Sea, due east, this is the terrain you'll cover. This is what it looks like, a barren wilderness. And some of you might feel that that is some, something that you actually feel right now. You feel, uh, you feel outside of God's presence. You feel outside of the work of God in your life. You feel that you desperately wish that he, something would happen to transform you from this experience that you're having. Some of us who came to Christ later in life will remember uh, this in in, in certain ways, uh, where we just felt empty and we felt barren and we felt like we needed more. We felt like we needed more what? More water. And, And that's the other image that you sometimes find together. You know, God sometimes says in the Old Testament, I will pour out my spirit upon you. The language of water is used regularly to reflect on what the spirit does in a person's life. Imagine pouring out water on that land and making it lush instead of a barren wilderness. That's the vision we get in numerous passages of scripture. I've actually got them written down here, but I see we're not going to be able to go through all of those, but let's reflect on that. Maybe maybe one of them, for example, in Ezekiel 37. We have a we have a, a Ezekiel given a vision of just this kind of terrain In that terrain, he sees dry bones. And that's the people of Israel. They are dead in this kind of dry land. And then in verse 14 of 37, uh, Ezekiel hears the words that God will, um, God's spirit will breathe life into these dry bones. God actually asks Ezekiel, do you believe that these bones can live? And the restoration of the people is equated with the restoration of the land. The resurrection is a symbol of that. It's it's part of that. God, by His Spirit, can bring new life into each of us uh, and give us that hope of eternal life with Him. Now, uh, the passage here, I think, is helpful, too. Isaiah 44, 3-4. For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my Spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. See the relationship of land and people in that verse. When Ezekiel... Pictures, or is given another vision in the last two chapters of Ezekiel. Uh, the land and the people are once again presented uh, as, as being restored. In the last chapter, chapter 48, we, we hear that the people of Israel will be bought, brought back from captivity in their sins to be given their inheritance in the land once again. And that language of inheritance is there in Ephesians 1.13. The Spirit guarantees our inheritance. Uh, But in chapter 47, there's this incredible uh, vision that Ezekiel has of the restoration of the land. And I'll come back to that uh, in the last slide. But just before that, let's look at the next one. And um, just uh, notice what Ephesians does with the uh, understanding of what how the spirit restores us what the spirit does how the spirit is active in our lives these are passages from ephesians with our focus on ephesians uh, as well so we've seen that the the spirit seals uh, us uh, we we receive the promised holy spirit and by the way that doesn't mean uh, um let me just read on and who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The the idea is not that God gives us a little bit of his spirit now as a guarantee that he will give us more of his spirit in the age to come. That's not what Paul is saying. He's saying that everything else that is to come is guaranteed because God has fully now given his spirit to us, his church. The presence of the spirit in us, his people is is, uh, is, is fully present and is a, f- a complete guarantee of what is to come. therefore, brothers and sisters, we should live in the spirit as god 's people, holy and blameless in love before him and then uh, chapter forty verse for chapter four, verse thirty repeats this. Sealed for the day of redemption. Elsewhere, Paul talks about the redemption of our bodies. That's resurrection language as well as redemption of, of ourselves from sin, by, by being bought back by God. Uh, chapter 2, verse 18. It's uh, th- through Christ uh, and the Spirit that we have access to the Father. Chapter 2, verse 22. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit the cleansing uh, activity of the Spirit in our lives, making us holy as he is holy, sanctifying us so that we become a dwelling for God. We, the people of God, are his temple. And then Ephesians 3, 5. um, The uh, Spirit is uh, is, is the source of revelation. As we say in the creed, in, the Spirit inspired the prophets, but he inspired all of Scripture. And he inspired the gospel in the, in the apostles and the prophets as well. So the Spirit is the Spirit of inspiration of God. Uh, chapter 3, verse 16, the Spirit is associated with the divine power as so often in Scripture. The divine power at work in us. Uh, Gordon Fee used to talk about the empowering presence of God is the Spirit um, in our lives and among us. Ephesians 4.3, the Spirit is the one who brings us unity in the bond of peace. And uh, in chapter 5, verse 18, we should be filled with the Spirit. There's that language of pouring and filling and water. Be filled with the Spirit. And then finally, uh, we carry the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. He is the one who's inspired it. And we should pray at all times in the Spirit. Our life is in the Spirit. These are images that Ephesians brings to our attention for what life in the Spirit is like. Let's conclude with the last slide. Instead of that dry and barren wilderness east of uh, Jerusalem, Ezekiel 47 pictures... Uh, the restoration of the land uh, as, as God's act of redemption. And uh, I'm, I'm using this picture from Plitvica in Croatia. Uh, just a beautiful picture, but you can see how there would be waterfalls and water if, if a stream would run through that. What Ezekiel 47 pictures is a time when Uh, Water will flow out of the throne room of the Holy of Holies of the temple. It flows through the south part of the temple and then goes east. And by going east, it goes through that exact land picture that I showed you earlier and goes all the way to the Dead Sea, that dead sea in which there can be no fish. And the description is so wonderful. Ezekiel is taken a little outside of the temple and he's He's able to splash around ankle deep in the water. And then he's taken further along and he's able to go waist deep into the water. And then he's taken further along in that barren wilderness. And and he discovers that he can swim in the life-giving spirit of God, transforming uh, this barrenness of the people of God into this kind of a picture of life Fruit trees grow alongside the river. Fish team in the river. And in the Dead Sea itself, God's transforming work. This is what we affirm when we say we believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe that God, by his empowering presence in our life through the Holy Spirit, can transform our life into this and make us anew. Brothers and sisters, let us live in the Spirit as his people. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.